Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, so last week we went over the abduction of three women in the Claremont area of Perth, Western Australia. Now, two of these women, 23-year-old Jane Rimmer and 27-year-old Kira Glennon, would be found murdered 40 kilometres from Claremont. Now, one was found north of the city and the other south. The other woman, 18-year-old Sarah Spears, who was the first to go missing, she would be presumed dead as her body was never found. Police have suspects, there are rumours around town and they even have an identical photo of someone who had given lifts to women in the area in what was maybe Telstra-owned work vans and station wagons. Now, police are also looking into other attacks on women in the area before and after the abductions, as they do. So let's get stuck into it because this is a very long episode. And of course, if you haven't listened to part one, pause this and go and listen to that. Tonight, my references are from WA Today, The Age, abc.net.au, Sydney Morning Herald and Court Records. Okay, so as we spoke about last week, we'll just get into it, straight into it this week. This Lance Williams guy that the police arrested as a suspect in April of 1998. Well, if you've watched the Ripper series on Netflix, which aired recently, the cops put a lot of effort into looking for a suspect after being sent letters and an audio cassette from the alleged Ripper, only to find out right at the end that this was a hoax. Even though some police thought the letters and audio uh, cassettes were not genuine, these police were ignored while the investigation went down the wrong path. It was sort of the case with Lance Williams as well. Police ran surveillance on him for at least a year, pouring precious resources into trying to pin the murders on him. Now, this would turn out to be a big mistake. And as the new millennium dawned, they were no closer to catching the Claremont serial killer. With these high-profile cases, police reach out for information from the public, anything that might get them a lead, any even small thing. But this is a bit of a catch-22. The more information you get, the harder it is to manage. Then, of course, there will always be those who genuinely believe that it's their next-door neighbour, their ex-husband or co-worker, without any real evidence. But police still have to log their calls and then triage it as a potential lead or not. And this takes time and money. By 2004, ABC TV, they aired a show called Australian Story, which was a weekly show about, well, Australian stories. This particular episode featured the Claremont case, and they had experts that they interviewed from around the world and Australia who recommended an independent review of the case using the latest techniques. Now, this pissed off the West Australian police a little bit, who hit back by saying they had reviewed the case 10 times over the years. Nevertheless, this did kickstart a new look at all the evidence with fresh eyes to see if they could find some little detail that might give a lead in the case. 
Now, with a mountain of evidence collected, the answer was probably already there. They just needed to go over it using the latest technology and procedures. So in November of 2004, an independent case review began with five experts from Australia and overseas. There were two detectives from Australia, a profiler from Seattle, Seattle, and two forensic experts from the UK. Now, they initially found out there had been a thorough and extensive collection of evidence, but now it required an overview of everything, and they could help piece all of these parts together. A psychological profile said that the murders and abductions probably weren't the first time this guy had had offended. And I'll say he, as I think it was certainly pretty much assumed it was a bloke doing it. It was suggested that investigators should have a closer look at crimes that occurred before and after that 14-month span between Sarah Spears going missing and the murder of Kiera Glennon. The forensic review found that there were lots of fibres that were similar to those found on the clothing and bodies of both Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon, fibres that seemed foreign or, or out of place on them. Now, these would need to be sampled and investigated as to their origins. Now, this review of the forensic evidence did provide more clues, but still it didn't give investigators a name. Operation Macro was disbanded, but the major crime squad was formed to take over the case. Then in 2008, a further review of forensic evidence found that a lot of the samples had yet to be tested thoroughly. Now, there were tens of thousands of pieces of evidence in this case at this time. Why the next piece of evidence wasn't thoroughly tested is beyond me, but here we go. A fingernail sample from Kira Glennon had been taken at her autopsy and hadn't been tested for DNA. It revealed two DNA profiles. One was Kira's and the other was an unknown male. So now they had a crucial link in the case, the killer's DNA. Hopes were up that a suspect would soon be found. Further investigation found that the DNA matched that of the Karakata rape survivor. Even though they had DNA tested so many people they suspected in Perth, the DNA recovered from Kira and the Karakata rape survivor failed to match anyone on record. What police hoped would be a magic bullet in solving the case went nowhere. And seven years later, in 2015, a local newspaper published the details of the DNA connection between the Claremont killings and the 1988 Karakata rape. The public were in shock at this news and it got the police doubling their efforts once again. They then looked back into a couple of crimes in the 1980s in Huntingdale. Now, one was the one I mentioned last week where a man had entered the bedroom of a girl. He had a silk kimono and he had held her down while trying to stuff a stocking in her mouth. Now, she was able to break free and call for a dad for help, but the perpetrator fled. Now, DNA testing of that kimono would match that of what was found in Kira's fingernail clippings and a further investigation found it matched that taken from the Karakata rape survivor. 
As I mentioned in part one, in February 1995, a girl just 17 years old and referred to as KJG in the trial was grabbed by a man while walking home from Club Bayview. Now, this is her story. This is the Karakata rape story. Now, I have removed some of the fine detail from court records here. I don't think we need to spell out everything. You can read it for yourself, really, if you if you really want to. It's all online. Now... When KJG was about 10 metres down from Langford Street, she was grabbed from behind. She did not see where the person came from and she did not see a car pull up or slow down on Gagari Street. She did not see the person who grabbed her. The man put his left hand over her mouth and his right hand on her bicep. She tried to get his arm off by shrugging her shoulders from side to side and moving her right arm backwards. He pushed her to the ground on the side of the park away from the road by pushing her with both of his hands on the front of her shoulders at the top of her chest. She fell to the ground. The man then bound KJG's wrists from behind her back. He put a thick cloth or gauze or sock into her mouth. She struggled by bringing her legs up and pushing forward with her pelvis to try and push him off. He put one arm under her back and one arm under her knees and picked her up and walked about 10 or 20 paces to a vehicle. She did not know where the vehicle was parked because her eyes were closed. The man put KJG into the vehicle. She did not recall hearing any doors open. She could feel that there was space around her in the back of the car. There was a bit of room to move and she was not resting against a seat. It felt like she was resting against the side of a vehicle. She was sitting on a tray top with no cushioning. It was metal and she could feel carpet. The vehicle was light coloured. She thought it was the type of panel van because of the way she was put into it. The man put a cloth bag over her head made of cotton or calico. He tied her feet together with a piece of cord. Her feet were in front of her and her knees were bent. She was sitting up in the back of the vehicle. She was very frightened. KJG estimated she was driven around for 25 minutes. She heard her abductor speak but could not hear what he said because it was muffled. She was not sure if he was speaking to her or if there was someone else in the car. The car stopped and the man came around to the back of the vehicle. He opened the back and pulled her down to the back of the vehicle. He lifted her out and carried her with one arm under her legs and the other arm behind her back. At some point, her legs dropped down and he dragged her by holding her under the arms and pulling her along so her heels were dragging in the dirt. Her shoes came off at this time. The man put KJG down on the ground on her back. She could feel sand, grit and twigs underneath her. She still had the bag over her head. The man sat on top of her with his legs on each side. He pushed up her top and her bra and rubbed and licked her breasts. He undid the zip at the back of her shorts and pulled her shorts and underpants halfway down her legs to about her knees. He undid the cord around her ankles and ripped or pulled her shorts and underpants off. The man pushed KJG's legs apart and raped her. The man pulled the bag off KJG's head while he raped her and took the cloth out of her mouth. She kept her eyes shut and pretended to be unconscious. He continued to rape her for five or ten minutes. The man rolled KJG over onto her stomach. She kept her eyes closed. She felt him continue to rape her. She felt a lot of pain. She remembered her face lying against the dirt. After, all, after that, the man got up and walked off. 
KJ knew he'd walked off because she could hear his footsteps on the twigs on the ground. She didn't see where he went to. She stayed lying where she was. She opened her eyes but did not move her head. All she could see was a tree and that it was dark. The man was away for about two minutes. He came back and picked KJG up like he'd done before, one hand under her back and the other hand under her legs. She had her eyes closed. He walked about eight steps or five metres and pushed her into some bushes by dropping her down from about half a metre. She heard him walk off. She rolled herself onto her knees and tried to stand up and started struggling to get her arms free. KJG heard the man coming back, so she sat back down in the bushes. The man pushed her onto her right shoulder so that she fell onto her side. He then picked her up again, one hand under her back and one hand under her legs, and walked about three or four metres. He threw her into the centre of some bushes that were a lot denser than the other bushes. She lay in the bush and acted like she was unconscious. KJG heard the man walk away and then heard the car start and drive away. She didn't see any car lights. Her hands were still bound, but she kicked the cord off from around her feet. She rolled out of the bushes and stood up. Although it was quite dark, she realised that she was in a cemetery because she could see some gravestones. She ran through some bushes and out a gate that was about five metres from where she was lying in the bush. KJG turned left and walked down Dalkeith Road on the opposite side of the road to the cemetery. She said it was getting lighter, so she thought it was near dawn. She had no clothes on the lower part of her body. The first street sign she saw was Carella and she turned right and kept walking straight. She saw some houses but didn't seek help there because she was too frightened and too embarrassed because she didn't have any clothes on. She got her vest off and draped it over the front of her with her elbows. KJG walked some distance and then found a Salvation Army building. She walked up to a sliding door and opened it. She walked into the bottom part of the building into a foyer area. She saw a phone on the wall and knocked it off the wall with her chin. She dialed triple zero with her chin, but it didn't work. She dialed her home number with her chin and it didn't work. She pushed several red buttons with her chin. She was yelling out, help me. She put her ear to the receiver and heard a woman on the other end. She said, can you help me? Come and get me. The woman asked where she was, but she didn't know. She told the woman that she'd been raped and started crying. KJG then ran out of the building and down Corella Street. She saw headlights coming towards her, so she ran across the road and hid behind some parked cars. She she thought that the person who attacked her might have been in the vehicle and he was looking for her. She was hiding behind the cars. She ripped her hands apart so that her hands were free, although the cord was still wrapped around her left hand. She watched the vehicle drive past. It was a white van like a minibus or a white panel van. KJG ran further along the road to a phone box on the corner of William Street and Monash Avenue, Nedlands. She dialed 076 and spoke to the operator. She asked the operator to be put through to her friend's number, but no one answered. The operator asked her what she wanted to do. She asked the operator to put it through to her parents' number. Her father answered the phone. She was crying and she asked him to pick her up. She could see a sign that said Hollywood Hospital, so she asked her father to pick her up from there. After she hung up on the phone, KJG went to Hollywood Hospital and bashed on the doors and cried help. 
She saw a nurse at the end of the corridor pointing to her to go around the side of the building. She became hysterical and pushed numbers on the security code pad. The nurse came towards her and opened up the door. She took her inside and got her some yellow hospital pants. Not long after that, her parents and the police arrived. KJG stated that throughout the incident she kept her eyes closed much of the time. The only time she saw her attacker was when he first pushed her to the ground. At that time she only looked at him for about a second and she wasn't directly looking at his face. Later the police took KJG to the cemetery near where her clothes had been found by police. Nothing of hers was missing except her sister's licence that she had with her. She didn't know when she'd lost it. She didn't know what happened to the bag that was on her head or the cloth in her mouth. After she'd spoken to police and showed them where she walked, she was taken to the Sexual Assault Resource Centre for a medical examination. What an absolutely horrifying experience. And from what we know now, she is lucky to be alive. So, now they have a link to the murder of Kira, a home invasion, an assault in Huntingdale, and plus that Karakata rape. Then another 1988 case was found where a man in a woman's 90 had attempted to break into a home via a sliding door. He was disturbed while trying to open the door and fled, but there were fingerprints left behind on the glass. Now this case seemed so similar to the Kimono case, it was in the same area and it was around the same time. Now, those fingerprints were examined and bingo, they matched those of a guy that had been convicted of assaulting a woman at Hollywood Hospital in 1990. It was Bradley Robert Edwards. Edwards, born in 1968, was a Telstra technician who had been working on the phone lines at the hospital. In 1990, the WD, as she would be known in court records, was working at Hollywood Repatriation Hospital as a senior social worker. She worked in the Allied Health Office, which was located in an annex at the back of the palliative care unit at the hospital. She shared an office with a senior physiotherapist and a senior occupational therapist. The office area was at the end of a ward and there was a toilet on the other side of the office. On the 7th of May 1990 at around 1.30 or 2pm she was seated at her desk in the office facing the window. She was writing a report and recalled that she wanted to go home for her daughter's birthday. She was alone in the office area. She heard someone at the door to the ward and Edwards who was doing work on the phone system said to her words to the effect of excuse me can I use the toilet or where's the toilet or something like that. She couldn't recall the precise words that were used. She glanced around by swiveling on her chair and saw that the person who had spoken to her was a telecom worker. She said, yes, yeah, sure, and carried on writing her report. WD heard the toilet flush and then became aware of Edwards behind her moving towards the ward door. He said, oh, I've dropped my pen. Can I go back and get it? She then felt him put his right hand over her face from her right hand side. He had a cloth in his hand. She recalled that it was a light covered coloured cloth which was heavier than a handkerchief. He put the cloth over her mouth. He forced her up with his right hand up against her face with his left arm lifting her shoulders. He pulled her up and back and her chair moved back with her. WD struggled as Edwards pulled her up and back. 
At first, she tried not to breathe in because she thought that there was something on the cloth. Then when she had to breathe, she realised that there wasn't anything on the cloth, so she struggled harder. Her feet slipped on the carpet as she was being pulled back and up towards the door to the toilet, and one of her shoes fell off. As she struggled, she twisted around and kicked Edwards hard in the leg. The chair fell over. The struggle lasted about 10 seconds and then Edwards stopped. WD staggered backward but remained on her feet. She looked at Edwards and moved back. He moved towards her and said, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. She moved as quickly as she could towards the door. She had one shoe off and one shoe on and a cardigan hanging off and she ran up the ward. She saw a locum doctor and tried to explain to him what had happened, but she could hardly speak because she felt in shock. The doctor continued towards Edwards, and then she went to the nurse's station. WD suffered bruising uh, bruising and contusions on her neck. Now, after this, Edwards would be charged, and on the 1st of June 1990, he was convicted after pleading guilty to the offence of unlawful assault and he was sentenced to two years probation. So he keeps himself out of jail. The thing is, and what would probably piss you off, he kept his job and later he was actually promoted. I mean, what the fuck? You do these appraisals at work, anyone in a corporate environment knows these ridiculous appraisals you get every year. I mean, the... There must be some record, oh, this guy grabs women while at work and then sort of, oh, when he knows he's not going to win the struggle, he lets him go, but he says he's sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he can get a promotion. Well, he, he keeps his job and then he gets a promotion. I mean, what the fuck? Anyway, we must go on. This is a long episode. So now... They have a name to the fingerprints from the guy in the 90 trying to break into a house that was similar crime to that of the home invasion where the kimono was left behind and the DNA from that crime matched that from Kira's fingernail clippings and the Karakata rape survivor. Now they had a name. They needed a sample of Edward's DNA just to make sure and start to tie everything up. Now Edwards was followed by undercover cops to a movie theatre. During the movie, he drank from a bottle of Sprite. He left that bottle behind after the movie. What an asshole! Take it to the bin. Anyway, it ended. <laughs> the movie ended, and police collected and tested for DNA that Sprite bottle. And guess what? Of course, it was a positive match. After two decades from when Sarah Spears had gone missing, they now basically had the perpetrator. Not to mention it had been nearly 30 years since those first known attacks. At about 7 a.m., 7.30 a.m. on the morning of the 22nd of December 2016, police officers attended the house of Edwards in Kewdale. The tactical response group were there to first burst in. Edwards was at home at the time and it was restrained by the officers. Shortly thereafter, investigating officers, including Detective Senior Sergeant Maripodi, entered the house and Edwards was formally arrested, told why the police were there, advised of his rights and provided with a copy of a search warrant for the premises. On being told the reasons for his arrest, Edwards acted with apparent shock and surprise. Now, Senior Sergeant Maripodi said, All right, that's for you. 
I'm going to inform you now that you're under arrest on suspicion of the willful murder of Kira Glennon. What? Jane Rimmer. What the Sarah fuck? Sarah Spears. What? For the aggravated sexual and abduction of KJG in 1995 in Rowe Park. The fuck? What the fuck's in going Rowe on? Park and for the break and enter and indecent assault in 1988 of AH. Who? Later in the conversation, when asked if there's anything he wished to ask, Edward said, I, I don't know. Why, why, why me? When asked whether there was anything he wanted to say in relation to the allegations, he said, I'm innocent. When asked if there was any property in his house belonging to Miss Spears, Miss Rimmer or Miss Glennon, he said, why would there be anything like that in there, in, in here? When told that the police would be executing a search and that he would be taken to police headquarters, Edward said, why me? Why, why are you pi- just, just picking on me? Why, why are you choosing me? Edwards was taken from the house at approximately 9am and arrived at the Cold Case Homicide Squad offices in Pierce Street at 9.20am. He was placed in an interview room. An interview commenced at 9.53am and concluded at 11.27pm the same day with a number of breaks. The interviewing officers was Detective Senior Sergeant Maripotti and Detective Senior Sergeant Capes. Edwards consistently denied the allegations put to him and maintained his innocence. He said that he was not involved in anything like that. He specifically denied any involvement in the alleged murders of Miss Spears, Miss Rimmer and Miss Glennon. In regards to the Karakata offences, he said, I don't know anything about any of this. In regards to the Huntingdale offences, he said that he vaguely knew A.H. as a girl from school but said that he could barely remember her. The only thing he could remember about A.H. was going for a swim at her house and they were in primary school and he denied ever going back to her house on any other occasion. He said he knew nothing of a break-in at A.H.'s house in 1988, adding, and I think that would be something you'd remember. He told police about his couple of failed marriages, where he lived over the years and other things about himself, and I'm not really going to go into his personal life at all other than to say that Edwards worked for Telstra from 1988 until his arrest. There really isn't anything in his past that stands out as unusual at all. He was basically the average guy next door. He denied frequenting the Claremont area, having any friends that lived there or having any reasons to drive through the area at night time. He knew there were nightclubs in the area but said, I've never been to them. He'd not been to Club Bayview or the Continental Hotel but had been to the Ocean Bay Hotel in the late 1980s. When asked whether he was aware of the disappearance of the three girls from Claremont, Edward said, I think everyone's aware of that. However, he denied any involvement in those disappearances and said he was 110 to 20% positive about that. He also denied any knowledge as to who was involved. When asked if there was any reason why his DNA would be associated with any of these offences, Edwards said, no, no, why? Why would it be? He denied knowing where Eglinton is or ever having been to Pippendinny Road. He said he also knew where Wellard is, but denied having been to Woolcott Road. Now, they're the locations for the murders. Edwards then provided a sample of his DNA at 11.52am. 
At 8.16pm, the police had obtained the results of this DNA test. When Edwards was told that his DNA was a positive match, he said, how could that be? And I don't understand. I, I, didn't, do, I, I didn't do any of this. When told specifically that there had been a match with DNA obtained from KJG, the following exchange occurred. Detective Senior Sergeant Maripodi. On the 12th of February 1995, KJG was abducted from Roe Park. She was taken to Karakata Cemetery where she was raped. Wasn't me, your DNA. I don't understand what you're saying. matched to DNA obtained from KJG. Your DNA. No one else's. Yours. I didn't. I, I wish I could explain. Tell me what happened, Bradley. What happened? I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. Do you understand what I've just said to you? Your DNA. Yeah, yeah, you keep saying that. But it's not going to change The anything. DNA came from semen. Explain. How can I explain it? I don't know what you, you mean by explain it. What do you... You're assuming I've done it? Edwards was then told about the results of the test as compared to DNA taken from Kira Glennon and the following exchange occurred. Detective Senior Sergeant Maripodi. You sure? Kira Glennon, 27 years of age, taken from Claremont on the 14th of March 1997, murdered and dumped on Pippendini Road in Eglinton. The male DNA profile from the KJG matter is the same as the DNA profile recovered in this matter here. What happened, Bradley? I, I don't know. I wish I could explain it and say I was wherever. I, I don't know. Brad, your daughter said that your most prized virtue is your honesty. This is your chance to show that she's right. I, I'm being honest. Did you hear what I just said? Y yes, I heard what you said. Your daughter. Your daughter has said your prized virtue is your honesty. I, I don't know what to say. Are you a man that accepts responsibility for his actions? Yeah, yes, I am. Now is the time to accept your responsibility. I accept responsibility for stuff I've done, not stuff I haven't done. Edwards was then told about the results of testing in the Huntingdale matter and was shown a photograph of the kimono. Detective Senior Sergeant Maripodi. Hmm, do you know what this is? No. It's a kimono, a dressing gown. Yep, you should know what it is. Why? Your DNA has been located in a number of locations on that item. Your DNA, no one else's, yours. Impossible. Never seen it before. Never seen it before? No. Hadn't worn it? No. It's her bedroom there. That item was left there. She was attacked in her bedroom, Bradley. I didn't do it. Tell me about. About where this came from. I don't know what it is or where it's from. Okay, so now police have Edwards in custody. That's just the start of all this. They will now have to be able to prove their suspicions and their charges in court. They'll take years to get the case together. They didn't want Edwards to get off on some technical technicality or some sloppy police work. When you go through the court documents I was using for research, they did quite an amazing and thorough job. They interviewed his ex-wives, his friends, family and co-workers. They had to ask them about events that had happened 20 years before to try to establish if Edwards was in the Claremont area at that time and also the Huntingdale area and if he was or was not at work. 
They were able to match fibres found on Kira Glennon and Jane Rimmer to fibres from Telstra work clothes and to the Telstra work vehicle, a Holden Commodore, that Edwards drove at the time while being employed by Telstra. Of course, they had the DNA evidence as well. Now, Edwards would be charged as follows, and there's eight counts he would be charged on. The first one, on February 15th, 1988, at Huntingdale, Bradley Robert Edwards broke and entered the dwelling house of E.H. with the intent to commit an offence therein, and that offence was committed in the night. Number two, on the same date and the same place as in count one, Bradley Robert Edwards unlawfully deprived A.H. of her personal liberty. Remember, that's the kimono job. On the 12th of February, this is count three, 1995 at Claremont and elsewhere, Bradley Robert Edwards unlawfully detained KJG. Count four, on the same date as in count three at Karakata, Bradley Robert Edwards sexually penetrated KJG without her consent by penetrating her vagina with his penis. And that Bradley Robert Edwards did broadly harm to KJG. And that Bradley Robert Edwards did an act which was likely to seriously and substantially degrade or humiliate KJG. Count 5. On the same date and at the same places in Count 4, Bradley Robert Edwards sexually penetrated KJG without her consent by penetrating her again with his penis. And that Bradley Robert Edwards did bodily harm to KJG. And that Bradley Robert Edwards didn't act which was likely to seriously and substantially degrade or humiliate KJG. Count 6. On or about 27th of January 1996 at Claremont and elsewhere, Bradley Robert Edwards willfully murdered Sarah Ellen Spears. Count 7. On or about the 9th of June 1996 at Claremont and elsewhere, Bradley Robert Edwards willfully murdered Jane Louise Rimmer. And Count 8. On or about the 15th of March 1997 at Claremont and elsewhere, Bradley Robert Edwards willfully murdered Kira Elish Glennon. Now, he would insist for years that he had he wasn't guilty of any of the charges. But then, just a month before the trial, which began on the 25th of November 2019, he finally pleaded guilty to counts 1 to 5. He still insisted he was innocent, uh, innocent of charges 6, 7 and 8. They were the charges of murdering Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon. Now, the trial lasted for 95 days, sitting days, between the 25th of November 2019 and the 25th of June 2020. It would be held by judge alone as there was no way they could find a jury to judge this case. There would be a lot of eyewitness accounts, forensic evidence, circumstantial evidence and propensity evidence. You probably know all know what circumstantial evidence is but may not have come across the term propensity evidence. Now, propensity evidence is the evidence that tends to show a person's propensity to act in a particular way or have a particular state of mind, being evidence of acts, omissions, events or circumstances with which a person is alleged to have been involved. Basically, if he did something once, he could do it again. Now, Sarah Spears' body has never been found. This was going to probably be the hardest charge to prove. It was shown that Edwards had the opportunity to commit these murders as he was living and working in the area at the time. 
He had no alibi for the times the abductions occurred. His DNA and fibres from his clothes were found on Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon, along with his DNA, which was found on Kira Glennon's fingernail clippings. Now, I'll just read out what happened in the kimono home invasion assault I told you about before. This, just like every other attack, is so disturbing and perverted. Now, this happened in Huntingdale, near where Edwards lived. What I haven't told you yet is that she knew Edwards because his younger brother was friends with her two brothers and Edwards' mother was her netball coach. She also attended the same primary and high school as Edwards. She was referred to in the trial as A.H. She was 17 at the time. Okay, A.H. went to bed at around 10.30 or 11pm. She slept with her head at the end of the bed on her stomach with her hands under the pillow. During the night, A.H. felt something on top of her which woke her up. She felt that she couldn't push up and that something was pressing either side of her from her waist below her arms against her body. She felt a hand come over and be held against her mouth. She said, It's okay, I won't scream. Because she thought that her boyfriend had come back inside the house. She felt another hand come onto the back of her head and one hand was pushing up and one hand was pushing down. A.H. moved her head from side to side, stopped, moved again and then stopped again because she was waiting for the person who she thought was her boyfriend to take his hands off her. She said, what are you doing? And let go of me. She felt the hand come off the back of her head and the weight of the person shift like he was reaching behind. Then the person moved his other hand and she felt that he had some fabric in his left hand. She noted that the right hand was calloused. A.H. moved her mouth slightly to the side and said, I love you. She then felt the pressure come off her back a little so she could pull her hand out from under the pillow. She raised her hand up in order to stroke his face. As her finger touched his face, she felt stubble and realised it was not her boyfriend's face because she knew her boyfriend had shaved that day. She dug or jabbed her fingernail into the man's cheek as hard as she could. The man got, got off her and A.H. heard a tiny patter. She said he was very light as he landed on the carpet of her room. She put her hands over her head and braced for about four seconds because she thought she was, he was going to hit her. She turned her head slightly to the side to see who was standing there and didn't see anyone. So she pushed up on her elbow and looked back over her right shoulder towards her bedroom door. She saw a man standing in her doorway facing towards her. He was almost as tall as the doorframe and was wearing something like a long-sleeved white cotton nightie. A.H. said that for half a heartbeat she and the man stared at each other in the dark and then she turned around and hammered on her wall and screamed for her dad. As she turned back, Edwards took off. She heard a bang and a few seconds later her father and then her mother came into the room and turned the lights on. There was some light in her room from the streetlight at the front of the house, which came through because her curtains didn't close properly. A.H. found a kimono lying on her bed along the wall, as well as some black knotted stockings and another piece of material. The police arrived and seized the kimono, stockings and piece of material. Fucking hell. He actually knew her and still did what he did. Maybe he might have had some sort of infatuation with her 
or something like that. But she was living with her parents at the time. They were in the house at the time. She wasn't home alone or anything. I mean, what the actual fuck was he thinking? Anyway, on the 24th of September 2020, Justice Hall, who was the judge of the case, read out his verdict. Now, here's a small clip. The verdicts will be as follows. Stand up, please, Mr Edwards. On count six, that on or about the 27th of January 1996 at Claremont and elsewhere, you willfully murdered Sarah Ellen Spears. My verdict is that you are not guilty. On count seven, that on or about the 9th of June 1996 at Claremont and elsewhere, you willfully murdered Jane Louise Rimmer. My verdict is that you are guilty. On count eight, that on or about the 15th of March 1997 at Claremont and elsewhere, you willfully murdered Kira Eilish Glennon. My verdict is that you are guilty. You can sit down. Well, there you go. Two out of the three charges proven. How the family of Sarah Spears must have felt. Still, her body hasn't been found and Edwards is found not guilty. But it was always going to be the hardest charge to prove. On the 23rd of December 2020, Edwards was sentenced to life imprisonment with a non-parole period of 40 years. Justice Hall added that Edwards will probably die in prison. Now, there are people that think he was involved in other disappearances between 1988 and 2000, but we may never know. Lance Williams, who, remember, he was arrested in 1998 and endured at least a year of surveillance as the main suspect in the killings, he was hassled by the media as well, was never formally exonerated by police. He lived to see Edwards arrested, but he died before the trial. Okay, so the thing is, why won't Edwards tell police the location of Sarah Spears' body? He was found not guilty, but it's pretty much a given that he did the crime. Police are still investigating the case, but it will be difficult to even convict Edwards of her murder as he's already been acquitted. A double jeopardy thing. My message to Edwards, if he ever hears this podcast, is to do the right thing. Just this small thing that would mean so much to the parents, family and friends of Sarah. Just let them know where she is so that they can move on from that part of their lives. It makes no material difference to you to keep this to yourself. No one will think any worse of you if you admit to her murder and tell authorities where she is. You're so despised by all that nothing will change what people think of you. But maybe you might just be seen as someone with just an ounce of humanity. But you're nothing but scum. You'll never see freedom again. Just do one right thing for once in your despicable life. Okay, that's it for this week. Another cold case solved by police determination and technology. And I must admit, I have been immersed in this case probably for the last month. As soon as I got off the Christopher Wilder case, there was so much to go through. So many, like I said last time, I didn't listen to any of the other podcasts or anything like that. I went through all the old newspaper clippings and that just took so much time. And, of course, the court records. Now, the court documents are online if you want to search for them. They're quite easy to find. Uh, It is so long. It just shows you how much 
effort was put into getting witnesses and evidence and all this, just trying to find out everything they could about where uh, Edwards was, what time, his friends, just so that they wouldn't slip up on this case. So a good job by police in the end and the thoughts go out to all the families who were involved. So before I go, big shout out to all my patrons, past and present. Thank you for sticking it out for the last couple of months. I know it's been a little bit light on, but I've explained why before. Uh, special thanks to my new patrons, Jamar Walters, Hannah Burdage, Katie Kellett, Mike P and Rhonda. Love that name, Rhonda. True Crime Island, of course, is a commercial-free podcast. It's free for all. If you'd like to help out, go to patreon.com forward slash Island, and it really does help keep the lights on. I also will be sending out rewards next week now that the postal system has calmed down a bit. So anyone who's expecting one, it should be in the next week or two. If you want to buy me a beer, you can shout me out on paypal.me forward slash Island. Links to merch, social media, and my YouTube channel is on my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can also email me. This episode is probably going to take me till next week to video and edit. It's uh, it's going to be an hour or so. So, I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night and bon vacalunga.